1: Welcome to season five of Plugged In, a post-media podcast taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. I'm your host, Andrew McCready. It's great to be back in the podcast chair for another season of exploring the ever-evolving world of electrified mobility. In addition to a new season, we've got a new producer too. Adam Foster is a veteran videographer and was one of the early advocates for podcasts within the post-media family. I'm honored to have him behind the board. For the kickoff of season five, We're tackling what is the most important aspect of the country's growth in the adoption of electric vehicles. Charging infrastructure. A robust and reliable charging network is essential for the widespread adoption of electric vehicle ownership in Canada. My guest has spent the last 15 years immersed in establishing and expanding the country's charging infrastructure and is a bona fide expert in his field. Jeff Turner is the Director of Clean Mobility at Dunsky Energy and Climate Advisors, a Canadian firm that supports governments, utilities, and other organizations in their efforts to accelerate the clean energy transition. The company recently produced a study on Canada's charging infrastructure readiness for the federal government. Since 2007, Jeff has conducted extensive work on electrifying personal vehicles and fleets and tackling key challenges related to charging infrastructure and grid capacity. Prior to joining Dunsky, Jeff worked at Powertech Labs, a subsidiary of BC Hydro, where he led EV charging infrastructure initiatives, supported EV adoption within corporate and government fleets, and contributed to the development of utility and government programs and policies. And on a personal note, I first met Jeff eight years ago when he invited me to be a keynote speaker at Electric Mobility Canada's 2014 conference in Vancouver. Thanks very much for joining us today, Jeff.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: So before we get into uh, EV chargers and the wants and needs of Canadians, um, let's start out with the very first electric vehicle you drove and your impressions of it at the time.
0: I'm, I'm glad you asked. The first electric vehicle I drove was an electric snowmobile that I built when I was at McGill University in around 2005. Uh, wow. So that's, that's how I got my start in this space, a very quaintly Canadian uh, approach to electric mobility uh, back in the early days. So what
1: compelled you to I mean, I can see people in engineering wanting to build an electric vehicle, but I would think a car or a motorbike might be before a snowmobile. But what was the what was your uh,
0: reason for that? Well, frankly, it was driven by some of the student design competitions that were live at the time, uh, and there was a, or an organization uh, called the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, you know, they develop a lot of standards for vehicles and things like that. They also host a number of design competitions for engineering students, and they had one all about cleaning up snowmobiles, making clean, quiet snowmobiles. And um, yeah, McGill University was the first school to show up and say, hey, we've got an idea to make this really clean and really quiet. And so we were off the charts in all sorts of directions, uh, much lower range than, uh, than the gas vehicles, but much better emissions and much quieter. So that was a really great way to sort of break into a space that uh, is still kind of a, a unique area for electric mobility.
1: And, and does that prototype still exist? And if so, where is it?
0: um it's that specific prototype is probably in pieces but the the mcgill electric snowmobile team went on to um yeah and some of the members of that team went on to found the company taiga that a lot of folks have heard about so those guys are now commercializing the idea of electric recreational products so it's pretty exciting to see uh you know engineering students putting that really practical experience into into practice in, in the field
1: Yeah, and it's certainly in the EV space, um, engineering students have kind of found a whole new frontier to explore in. So it's uh, very uh, fertile times for them.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So before we get into the findings of the Dunsky Energy and Climate Advisors report, which we're going to talk about here, what was your team asked to explore by the federal government? I mean, what did the federal government come to you and say, this is what we want to find out or this is what we want to have an overview on?
0: I mean, we've been working with Natural Resources Canada for a number of years, uh, and that's the branch of the federal government that has been uh, providing funding to support deployment of charging infrastructure all across Canada. Uh, in fact, when I was living in Vancouver, one of my jobs there was uh, deploying the first public uh, level two and fast chargers out in BC with uh, BC Hydro, and that was supported by federal funding uh, through Enercan. And so Uh, with this organization, you know, really being deeply involved in in infrastructure deployment for a number of years, it was, it was really important for them to get a sense of where is this going? Uh, How much charging infrastructure are we going to need to support the transition to uh, electric vehicles across Canada? And so they approached us asking if we could conduct a study to, you know, really uh, incorporate these forecasts for how many vehicles are there going to be in the future? and, And what does that mean in terms of the needs for different types of charging infrastructure as this, as this market evolves.
1: Right. Right. And obviously that's, I mean, when I started this podcast three years ago and it it seems like a long time ago, but it really isn't. um, But in the EV space, things move so quickly, you know, the concern or not the concern, but the, the, the question then was, are we going to have vehicles? Are manufacturers going to build these things? Um, Well, I think they've, I think the manufacturers have fulfilled that, 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 promise they they they're bringing evs to market yes there are inventory issues in canada with them but there are lots of evs available in the market now and now the kind of concern for people to buy is switching to infrastructure that's what you hear right that's what it's all about now is infrastructure infrastructure so obviously that's why the federal government needs to get a sense of you know by 2030 2040 2050 these kind of these kind of goalposts that have been set out they need to know how many we're going to need but it just seems like such a such a difficult number to ascertain in that you won't know how many, I mean, it's a chicken and egg thing, EVs, EVs or chargers, chargers or EVs, which, which do we need first?
0: Yeah. And, and, and that question, that chicken and egg question becomes really important when you're looking at, uh, you know, how do we get a a business environment where, uh, you know, private investors are, are driven to deploy this infrastructure because it'll get used by folks who are paying usage fees and it'll be a, you know, a savvy business investment. Uh, So I think from that aspect, uh, yeah, there is certainly a chicken and egg component. But I think already years ago, um, the Canadian government, a number of other organizations across Canada, determined that they want to break that cycle and at least get some infrastructure in the ground to begin with, uh, because they understand that this is really a critical component of our our, um, our emissions reduction strategy for the transportation sector. And so uh, it's pretty exciting because I think we're now at a point where we're transitioning. It's often been, you know, governments and utilities that are, you know, taking that first stab at getting this infrastructure in the ground. But over time, as the market evolves, we are seeing an increasing level of interest from uh, whether it's retail outlets, gas stations, uh, automakers themselves obviously have a big stake in the game and are starting to invest in this stuff. Right. So I think it's um, pretty, pretty exciting to see that start to materialize. But our assessment across a number of different projects suggests that it's still going to be some time where we're going to need that support from governments and, and utilities that can sort of look at the bigger picture.
1: So, so I mean, the million dollar question is the the, the findings of your study in terms of government supported EV chargers. I mean,
0: what's the number? Uh, well, I, I'd say it's it's a, a number of different numbers. And, and, I, and honestly, one of my um, regrets with this uh, analysis is that it's it's kind of hard to present in a really simple way. It's Uh, Politicians really love to have one headline number that that they can talk about. But as uh, most existing EV drivers know, and and, um, there there are a number of different types of charging stations. Uh, They're the kinds of chargers that you would use at home. Uh, There are chargers that you might use while you're at work or parked somewhere for a long period of time. And then there are fast chargers that you use for, say, half an hour to 45 minutes for a quick top up to go on a long trip. Um, And so all that combines into one headline number. But for me, it really makes sense to kind of break this out and, um, you know, talk about we're going to need somewhere on the order of 14,000 fast chargers by 2030, somewhere on the order of 200,000 public level two chargers by 2030. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of factors at play here and uh, that might be a helpful benchmark to keep in mind. Uh, You know, 2030 is just a few years down the road. Uh, But our report really goes into the details of how those numbers evolve over time, all the way through until we hit 2050, when we expect, if we meet our targets in terms of 100% of new vehicle sales being electric by 2035, we expect that almost all the cars on the road by 2050 should be electric. And that's sort of the the end game that we're keeping in mind.
1: And I guess, does geography geography play into this? Like when you say 200,000 chargers or 14,000, I mean... Obviously, there are corridors, there are there are urban centers. I mean, did you guys get drilled down to the specifics of that?
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, a a really big early focus of charging infrastructure deployment uh, was all about geography. Folks, you know, the, the first question that people have when they ask what it would be like to have an EV is, you know, how do I go long distances? How do I go on that long trip that I do once or twice a year? And it's really critical that we have the infrastructure in place that reassures folks that they can get to where they need to go. And we refer to that as sort of geographic coverage or connectivity. And that's really, you know, how many dots do you need on a map to, to get from point A to point B? And, you know, I think we're we're almost there in Canada. I mean, it's amazing. I, I know folks that drove across Canada in, in an EV back in 2015, and it was a real adventure. Uh, whereas now it's, you know, it takes a little bit of planning, but it's, it's, Pretty, pretty easy to do at this point with the, the fast chargers that are in the ground uh, from coast to coast, from Tofino, B.C., all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, and so that's, that's pretty promising. But I think a big focus of this study was looking beyond that geographic connectivity and answering the question, well, how many chargers do we need at each site to avoid lineups? And that's where it really becomes important to consider, well, how many EVs are there on the road? And that's sort of a big part of the focus of this study. Um, From that perspective, that's where it starts to get really important to think not just about those highway corridors, but also the needs for charging infrastructure in more dense environments, because that's where there are a lot of people and that's where they actually do most of their driving on a day to day basis. Um, Not everybody needs to charge uh, on our typical daily commute, but there is um, a lot of demand for charging in those urban centers, uh, especially for folks that can't charge at home or at work. Uh, so I think that's where there's a really important component of this study, just looking at you know where do these charges need to go relative to uh, the the population centers that we have across the country versus those highway corridors.
1: Yeah, and it, would you? I mean, talking about those highway corridors, I mean, out here in BC, we don't really have the same extent of kind of you know, I mean, we we have one or two highways that are that are major that connect us to other provinces. Um, but I think of the 401 and I think of the en route stations, which are the very large places, huge parking lots, um, and it's a gas station, but it's also, I mean, it's a food court. It's all kind of, it's a rest area, essentially, but it's, it's on steroids, right? And, it, and it's a big piece of land. And to, and to my thinking, it seems like the private sector in that case will be the ones that fill in that network system. Where the government-supported ones maybe would be more targeted to the urban areas. I mean, is that a fair assessment, or is it is it, you know, can it can it go both ways?
0: I I think it it can go both ways because also in those urban environments, um, that's where we also see the strongest utilization. You know, we do a lot of work with uh, utilities and governments that are actively putting infrastructure in the ground and and operating them and, and monitoring them. And generally speaking, those chargers in those dense environments, those are the most heavily used chargers out there. Right. And so that's actually where we see the the best potential for uh, profitability from the private sector investing in this space. Um, but yeah, in parallel to some of those really heavily traveled highway corridors, I think where it's obvious to me that there's going to be a, a need for ongoing support is in those more remote highway corridors. It's really interesting to think of you know gas stations in on remote highway corridors. The really big difference is that you know the, these gas stations are usually in in small towns that happen to sit along those corridors. Those businesses might have to handle, you know, peak travel volumes on some days, but they can also count on the captive audience of local residents. Because if you have a gas car, 100% of your gas is going to come from a gas station. So they can, they can count on that business. Um, but whereas if we think about a charging station in a remote highway corridor uh, in a small town somewhere, uh, those local residents are all going to do most of their charging at home. And so that kind of charging infrastructure that absolutely must be there So that folks can, you know, in Toronto or Vancouver can be convinced that they can switch to an EV and know that they can make it to visit grandma once or twice a year. Uh, They need to see that charger on the map, uh, even though they're hardly ever going to use it. So that's where there's a real sort of catch 22 in terms of the business case for investment in charging infrastructure that I think uh, there's going to be a long term need for government and or utility support for infrastructure in those types of locations.
1: Right, and and also I guess there there are I mean when you look at EV sales in Canada, it's essentially I mean an urban situation from Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. So those outlying areas are kind of going to be the ones that get last service. But in a way, a lot of city dwellers are waiting for that to get service simply because that's where they want to go eventually in their EV. So it's 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 a really kind of um, it's a very complicated puzzle to solve the growth of charging
0: yeah absolutely and I, and I think we're getting to a point now where you know this this might have started as very much a uh, you know a, a left-leaning urban dweller uh, enthusiast market uh, folks that really wanted to reduce their emissions yeah um but i think we're really starting to see a bit of a change there and um yeah whether that's bipartisan support from both sides of the political spectrum or just growing interest from folks in other de- demographics that are you know, going from seeing, you know, a handful of EV models on the market that automakers are are, are putting out there here and there to now getting to the point where, you know, uh, Ford CEO is telling everyone that the best uh, F-150 they make is the the electric F-150 Lightning. And really sort of selling this thing, not just on, you know, the benefits of reducing our emissions, but of it being genuinely a better product. Um, I live in a rural area and I interact with a lot of folks that aren't as you know excited about emissions reductions as I am, but I'm definitely starting to see more of that just natural demand for these products that are increasingly being marketed just based on their, their capabilities and, and honestly, the, the cool factor, which is kind of a new thing compared to when I was uh, working on EVs, you know, over, over 10 or 15 years ago. Andrew and his guest will be right back after this word from our sponsor.
1: So obviously, um, money plays into this and, and at a government level, I mean, did you guys put forth a cost estimate to, to achieving those uh, charger goals that you presented?
0: So that wasn't really the, the main focus of our analysis here, um, but we recognize that that's obviously going to be a top question. And so we did you know, throw out some hypotheticals and, and just said, well, hey, if we need so many fast chargers and so many level two chargers... Uh, and we have some rough estimates for about how much those things cost to put in the ground, we came up with a rough number of about $20 billion uh, over the next three decades. And we we know that's not an exact number. We've seen firsthand how much those installation costs can vary significantly depending on the number of factors. But we think that gives us at least an order of magnitude idea for how much this is gonna cost. And, And frankly, I think in the grand scheme of things, 20 billion dollars uh, over the next three decades to basically satisfy all of our needs for charging infrastructure is is, I think, compared to a lot of other government expenses, it's it's not actually that huge. Um, and this is a key ingredient for us to completely decarbonize um, the, the light duty vehicle sector. Uh, and so that's a pretty big deal. Um, but I think like I said, I, I think it's really important for Infrastructure investment and planning to happen at a more local level that can really account for all those factors that really vary from from one place to the next.
1: That, that's a question I was wondering about is, you know, we have three levels of government in Canada and um, all of them are, are sort of competing with each other in a way. Um, yeah. What level federal provincial municipal, I mean, all of them have parts to play, but I mean, which is the most integral in your mind to getting this done?
0: Um, it's it's really hard to pick any just one. They all have roles to play. Uh, just quickly at, at the local level, municipal governments. Uh, you know that's where a lot of people um, live and work. That's also where we have the most significant barriers to adoption of EVs. You know, folks in suburban and rural areas uh, more likely to have driveways, more likely to be you know driving distances where they're going to make um, it's going to make a lot of sense to switch to an EV just based on fuel savings. Those urban environments are where we have additional barriers, Uh, so a lot of folks that live in multi-unit residential buildings, folks that rely on uh, on, on on-street parking. And so municipal governments have a really important role to play in terms of ensuring that as many people um, as possible have convenient access to charging where their vehicle sits overnight. Our general uh, recommendations is that that's always going to be the most convenient place to charge and typically the most uh, cost-effective way to do it as well. So retrofitting those existing apartment buildings and condos, um, obviously making sure we're not building new buildings without EVs in mind to begin with, as we've already done in BC for a number of years. Um, But also there's always gonna be, you know, some portion of the population that's dependent on uh, storing their vehicle on the street overnight. And so figuring out charging options for them, whether it's curbside level two charging, fast charging hubs in urban areas that they can swing by once a week or so. Um, th- those are some major challenges that local governments are really well positioned to, to tackle um, at the other end of the spectrum the federal government they they've been playing a big role providing a lot of money on the table um, and so I think they're, they're going to keep doing that and that's really important just given the, the the weight they have to throw around financially they can really help out uh, to improve the economics for charging by helping with those um, with, with the cost of deploying this infrastructure. But I think uh, you know, most of our road systems are really managed at the provincial level uh, in this country. And I think it's the provincial governments that really have the best understanding of their, the, the transportation needs within the province. And so I think it does make sense to have those provincial governments really kind of calling the shots in terms of what's needed where and uh, how much to invest over time. Um, of course, we have you know, different levels of enthusiasm from coast to coast. Uh, we have some provinces that have been taking, uh, taking this on for a number of years other provinces that are certainly uh, a few years behind that, but I think ultimately that's the level of government that's going to have a, a good understanding of what's needed, as, uh, you know, across the country, uh, across their provinces in accounting for, you know, the the v- variation in geographic geography across their province.
1: What, one thing that's come up lately, or I mean, it's been an issue, I think, for people that have owned EVs, but it's becoming more kind of in the news and that's kind of a standardized payment system at EV chargers, you know, as it stands now, I mean, from flow to, you know, all these, you kind of have to carry five or six cards with you as you're driving just in, so you, so you have an account with whatever charger it is. Um, is that something you have addressed or is that something that's on the federal government's radar? Cause I would assume it would be them that would need to regulate something like that.
0: I'm just chuckling because that that first Enercan funded project that I worked on with BC Hydro back in 2012, that was absolutely one of our goals from the start. We we were referring to the idea of having a a bunch of key fobs on your keychain for different networks and the idea of fob fatigue. and (laughs) There must be a way to to minimize this and streamline things. And and so it's been on the industry's radar for at least 10 years. Uh, so, So it is frustrating that there hasn't been as much progress as you might have thought. That said, we are starting to see uh, what's referred to as roaming agreements between networks. So, for example, in BC, uh, BC Hydro's network is interoperable with, uh, I believe, both Flow and ChargePoint, and so that you can use, um, you know, one network's FOB or app to pay for charging on another network. Uh, and that's happening in other parts of the the continent as well, including here in Quebec. Um, so that's that's one of the options. Um, but I, I think you're right that there's still room for improvement. You know, I. I Convince my in-laws to switch to an EV. They love it uh, because of course, 95% of the time, they're just charging at home and and that's easy. But once in a while they do go on a road trip and I just get a little bit of cold sweats when I think about them, you know, they're not the most tech savvy. So having them figure out how to, you know, download the right app and and, uh, enable charging. So far it's worked out. I think we're, you know, we're we're making improvements. And, uh, but I I think that is an area that definitely needs some work.
1: Another thing that kind of comes up, as you say, you can drive across the country no problem now with an EV. With an EV, you you can set up your your, you know, your nav system to pretty well tell you where to go and where to charge. Um, you know, increasingly with more people in EVs, the the charging network in some places hasn't caught up, and suddenly you've got lineups. Um, but another one, another thing I'm hearing from from listeners and from readers is there's an issue with reliability with some of these chargers. So in other words, there's You know, it's advertised on your app that it says there's four stations there or four chargers at the station. You get there and two of them aren't working. Um, There's a PetroCanada near me. And for the first three, four months, one of their DC fast chargers was consistently down. Um, Teething pains, possibly. But that's something, too, that it seems like, you know, the the fuel sector is regulated, you know, a hundred times. Whereas this isn't really regulated yet. And I'm wondering if that's something too that will be coming is this kind of this standardized um, um, kind of licensing system, but also kind of like a service checking system.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. It's, it's so important. And I think it's um, France from Hydro-Quebec who, who coined the, the idea that a broken charger is even worse than no charger at all because you get people planning their trip around it and then they get there and their, their plans are turned upside down. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical. I think the only thing that's been constant throughout all this is that every new player that gets into this space tends to underestimate how much work is required to keep this infrastructure running reliably. You know, these are pieces of equipment that are being charged by, um, you know, used by a number of different users uh, who are maybe first-time users. Uh, connectors get dropped, they're in uh, all sorts of different climate environments. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really important and it's, it's pretty hard, but I'd say that there's uh, you know, a shining light. There are a number of players that have been doing this for a number of years and who have figured out how to really get their infrastructure running reliably. Uh, I, I think of um, my former colleagues at BC Hydro, who at this point, you know, 10 years down the road, they've, they've really gotten into the rhythm of it and they have the systems in place, leveraging the capacity of, of the, the organization to really make sure they're responding quickly. Um, and, and, uh, making sure those chargers are available as, as much as possible. Likewise with Hydro-Quebec, they really recognize the importance if, if they're going to invest in this stuff, it's because they want to enable adoption of EVs and reliable infrastructure is absolutely critical to make sure, um, uh, folks are able to make that switch, especially as we move past these early adopters that are maybe a little bit more forgiving of, of, uh, hiccups along the way. Um, So far, I think the federal government, you know, the funding that's been available from Entercan has been, um, you know, available to a wide range of actors. And it's been on them to present uh, their plans for how they're going to operate and maintain the infrastructure. But I think going forward, there's probably going to be more attention and more kind of hooks in place to make sure anybody receiving funding is really going to be held uh, to certain minimum requirements. uh, Because, yeah, this is this is absolutely a key piece of the puzzle. And. uh, yeah i'm looking forward to uh being able to encourage my in-laws to go travel wherever they want and uh and it being sort of the the standard assumption that they'll run into uh they'll they'll be able to charge wherever they need to plug in
1: yeah i think what my advice to people is you got to pack a little patience and um you know that's always been the case of owning an ev it's a it's a totally different kind of um environment when you're when you're when you're driving one and operating one so you're right. The early adopters are willing to. But now there's so many people that just think, OK, I'm going to buy one. But, you know, the, the magic bullet is that I want to just fill up like a gas station and, and you got to get your head around the fact that we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think anything that we work on, um, whether for local governments or utilities or other levels of government, it's always with an eye towards growing this beyond those early adopters and thinking through, you know, what is it going to take? to get the, you know, it's something like 98% of the rest of Canadians who aren't yet driving an EV, you know, new vehicle market share is higher than that. But in terms of the vehicles on the road, it's still the vast majority of people who so far have still been convinced that a gas car is the best bet for them. So we really need to think of it from their perspective in terms of solutions that are going to work and and convince them that this is uh, something that can fit with their lifestyle.
1: Okay. One last question to you and to that point, um, in your mind, I mean, what what will signal that we've re- reached a tipping point with EV ownership adoption in Canada? I mean, is it a is it a, a, a volume of sales? Is it is it uh, the number of vehicles available on the market? I mean, what what in your mind will think? Okay, we've we're we're on the downward slope of pushing this rock up the hill.
0: I mean. You know, so we we do a lot of projects where we're developing forecasts that include that classic S curve of adoption, where we're you know moving through those early innovators and trying to get on that steep part of the S curve, where the number of vehicles that you're seeing on a daily basis is really raising your awareness and 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 seeing, um, yeah, yeah, seeing seeing the technology and how good it can be for for. Um, uh, yeah anybody that needs to get around uh, in an affordable way to be honest in some ways i think we have passed a tipping point um it, critically with uh the enthusiasm from the automakers um you know we've seen like you said for years there's been a, a long uh a lot of challenges in terms of getting your hands on a, on a vehicle and that, that still is the case today but we're starting to see a real shift in the level of enthusiasm from the automakers who um you know for a number of years might have been you know dribbling out new products here and there but We're really at a point where some of the highest volume products, uh, you know, segments like mid-size crossovers, like the Chevy Equinox and the the F-150 that I mentioned earlier. Um, Yeah, just the level of enthusiasm that we're seeing from automakers suggests to me that we've already passed a pretty important tipping point. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, it's still in, maybe I'm a bit biased because I'm here in Quebec, you know, I, I was in Vancouver a few months ago and it's pretty exciting to see the number of EVs on the road there. But it's a different story in other parts of the country. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll be at a tipping point when you can walk into any given dealership across the country and be delivered a pretty compelling sales pitch from somebody who has EVs on the, on the floor and is uh, convinced that this is something that they really wanna sell and uh, will really help those curious uh, late majority folks who are just maybe EV curious and not quite as committed as us early adopters and find a salesperson who can really push them over the edge. I think that'll be a really critical point.
1: Well, thanks very much for talking to us today, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. It was really fun. That's Jeff Turner, Director of Clean Mobility at Dunsky Energy and Climate Advisors. That's it for this episode. Thanks to my guest Jeff Turner, producer Adam Foster, and you for joining me on another electrifying journey down the EV highway. It can't be overstated how critical the establishment of a charging network, both within urban areas and in rural and outlying communities, is to Canada's EV revolution. Our country recently received a failing grade, 13th out of 14th, in the latest EV Readiness Index, an annual analysis that assesses nations based on their supply, demand, and policies for EVs clearly we need to do better. It was great to hear from Jeff, not only for his insights and expertise on where our charging network is headed and how, but also to learn that so many bright minds are working behind the scenes in the public and private realms to ensure that we aren't left behind when it comes to electrifying our passenger vehicle and light truck segments. Suffice to say, billions of dollars are required to make that happen, as is the political will at all levels of government. As Jeff noted, federal, provincial, and municipal officials have important and distinct roles to play, as does the private sector. The automotive companies have fulfilled their end of the bargain by bringing electric vehicles to market, granted still at a bit of a premium price, so the focus now shifts to building out the infrastructure to support that growing fleet of EVs. This important subject will be the topic of future episodes of Plugged In, I'm sure. We always welcome your comments and criticisms via email at pluggedin@postmedia.com. at postmedia.com. For your dose of all things automotive, including up-to-date information on new EVs in Canada, be sure to check out driving.ca, where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. And be sure to subscribe to Plugged In wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode, and you'll also be able to listen to all the episodes from seasons 1 through 4. The next episode goes live on Wednesday, September 28th.